As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful, Herbal Face Food, for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have a very special guest with me today, somebody whom I have admired for many years. Jonah, my son, is now 15. I have in front of me 
Dr. Dan Siegel's book, Mindsight, which is dog-eared, post-itted, bookmarked, and my son, when he was probably five or six, wrote on it and said, if lost, call this number. It's Elena's book. It is a great privilege to speak to one of the very few people who influenced my parenting to the point that I can now say I have a tremendously kind, evolved adult, young adult in my midst. Thanks to you, Dr. Dan Siegel. Well, Elena, thank you for those kind words. And um, your son and I are, are grateful <laughs> to you uh, for the hard work it takes to dive into you know, our own inner life and see how we can transform our lives. So thank you for having me. Oh, what a, it's real, really an honor for me. I'm, I'm just beyond words. Mindsight is the book that I want to begin with. And I know you've done a lot of other projects. And we are also going to talk about your new book, which is called Becoming Aware. But Mindsight is the way that I and many of my uh, friends who parented during the last de decade or so uh, learned about how the brain works. And as you say, knowing about how the brain works sort of enables us to know and gain distance from harmful or even damaging relationships that we've had so that we can start to feel compassion and understanding and start to move past the grudges that we humans hold in our bodies, in our tissues, in our cells. Um, Mindsight for me was a way for me to look at my own upbringing, my own childhood, and my own tendencies, which I saw were starting to happen as early as Jonah was two or three years old, with more focused attention. And I, I started to be able to see how I worked internally. I was becoming aware of my mental processes through your writing so that I could stop being swept away, so that I could start feeling the process of freeing myself from the patterns of the mind to which I was having these tendencies. When you discovered Mindsight, I remember at the beginning of the book, the case of that mom of two kids, I believe her name was Barbara in the book, and she had had a life-altering, brain-altering car accident right in her own neighborhood that changed her completely. And that was sort of the, the jumping off point. You decided to catalyze how to explain not only to your reader, but prior to that, to this family, to these three kids about why their mother was there in body, but she wasn't the same person after that accident. And I, I don't think I'll ever stop thanking you for the work that you've done. I would love to hear from your perspective, how Mindsight came to be, how you define Mindsight, because I have my own def definition. And I want to walk through just a few of the points in this book that have truly changed the way that I parent. Well, thank you so much for those um, really powerful reflections and also for, you know, bringing to all of us how something as fundamental as the way we see the inner life of what we can simply call our minds, um, which is the beginning of how to define mind sight is so important for how we raise kids, for how we live our lives. And for me, that whole journey started even before the patient I call Barbara came to my office with her daughter, actually, who had stopped speaking because it was literally unspeakable to have a mom who used to be so connected, so tuned into her inner mental life, seeing her feelings or her intentions, what, what this child was longing for in just being alive, her mother was very tuned into that. And then the car accident happened and she lost all of those things. And she was attending to the physical world. So she had physical sight, but not mind sight. And that notion began for me when I, you know, about 10 years earlier had dropped out of medical school because my professors were only focusing on the physical aspect of medical health. They were able to be, you know, doing laboratory tests and exams and things like that and teaching us to be like them. But they never talked about a patient's feelings or what it meant if they were given a serious diagnosis or if they were facing death, how that was going to be incorporated into their family life or 
the narrative of who they had been this whole journey of living. So I ended up dropping out of school and went on a journey just of, my gosh, I had always wanted to be a physician. And now I was in medical school and it was not at all what I thought it was going to be. And when I decided to go back and go back to the same school as a research institution, you know, medical school, I needed something to protect me from what I assumed would have been the same situation where the teachers wouldn't have changed. And so I, I realized that there is something you can simply name. And I made up the term mind sight back then, uh, where you see the mind, you see feelings, you see the narratives that organize our lives. You see the meaning of things, the intention we have, um, and even see our relationality. So all of that was embedded in the word mind sight as a medical student. And I noticed, even though the teachers hadn't changed, the few professors I had who did have this skill that they expressed to their patients had patients who thrived. They did much better, even facing serious illness. So I went into pediatrics. I used the concept of mindsight to help guide me through following teachers that had it and teachers who didn't. I would use them as sort of anti-role models. Wow. And then, you know, when I became a, a, a psychiatry trainee, it also continued to be a concept that, you know, wasn't talked about. There there was a term called theory of mind that had been developing around the same time. And later on, something would develop called reflective function or mentalization. But at, at the time we're talking about no words like that were in common use. And so it just became something when I did get Barbara's daughter as my patient, when I met Barbara and saw that she wasn't showing any signs of mind sight. And then when um, her daughter who was I think around seven at the time, brought in a, a, a video of her mom at a birthday. And you could see how tuned in she was to the inner life of everybody in the party, including my patient, the, the seven-year-old. And then for the first time, this kid with selective mutism began to speak and said, that's how she used to be. And it was so profound. And so I got the scans from the neurosurgeon with, my, with Barbara's permission, of course, and I went to the library, which in those days we had to do, there was no internet stuff. And, right. and I, I looked up everything I could about the networks that the neurosurgeon's scans showed me had been damaged in the car accident that Barbara unfortunately had. She hadn't taken the time to put on a seatbelt. So everyone wear your seatbelt. And those networks later on, we would come to understand were networks that are needed to make maps. The brain is a map maker, like you can map out what you see with your eyes. And so you have a visual image of the world around you. Well, you also have a mind sight map making set of networks that allow for insight for your inner map of me and make a map of others inner lives called empathy. And even a map of the we, you know, the relational connections we have, not just with other people, but even with nature. So these mindset maps, very simply, are a mindset map of me, a mindset map of you, and a mindset map of us, if you will, including all of nature. So these three maps then are something you can teach. They're skills of map making that usually we learn at home. Uh, Barbara learned it. Barbara had taught it to her kids, the three kids. But then when the networks were so severely damaged, you know, the brain can recover from a lot but this was a pretty serious injury and they were destroyed. And sadly, Barbara lost even the motivation to regain them because those networks were lost too. So it was a, it was a very painful, but important process of grief that the kids and the father needed to go through to realize Barbara was still there but her ability to be aware of their inner mental lives or her own mental states, you know, emotions, thoughts, feelings, hopes, dreams, longings, desires, beliefs, intentions, all of that is what we mean by the word mind. And she just lost the ability to be aware of those things. She had those things. They are involved in other networks, but to map them out and see them as something you could even not only be aware of yourself, but talk about in what are called reflective dialogues that she lost. So that's where mindsight comes from. This my own personal journey through the world of medicine and seeing its lack and then applying this concept 
in my work as a psychiatrist. Hmm. I think what I appreciated most about that story was the way it sort of shows us the very extreme of somebody who can't ever get that back. And then you sort of walk your reader into the, the truth of that it's actually never too late, barring an unforeseen tragedy such as that one, a real blunt injury. It's never too late to grow the synaptic neurology in your brain. It's never too late. And I think the whole book then unfolds really from there. What I found most helpful, I can say, in my own parenting was the, the process that enables us to go from this sort of limbic reactivity directly back, sometimes slowly, sometimes more efficiently, to receptivity. I would tune my kid in often, just the same way you showed those children the brain scans of their mother and said, this is the place where all of this happens and this is the place that's looking very destroyed or however you worded it. I would explain to him, similar to how you've described it, where there's a fist like sort of um, on top of the thumb and then you, if you, if you're listening to us, just make a fist in front of you and turn your hand to the side so you're looking at the profile of your fist and you sort of flip your fingers up when you get upset, that flip up is literally the prefrontal cortex sort of leaving the limbic brain, the instinctive brain, exposed and raw. And that's what happens when you have a temper tantrum, whether you're an adult or a kid. And I would explain that to him. And in the explaining of it, we got better at it and started to evolve what really felt very ancestral and very much out of my control at the time. How did you come up with that description of it? Well, Elena, I got to say, you are making me smile and feel so um, grateful for your reflections. Hmm. I, I'm trained originally, you know, as a scientist and then as a physician and then as a psychotherapist in my training as a psychiatrist. So, you know, part of where I live and breathe and work is in the world of, you know, science and write science books and things like that. And then as a therapist, you know, I try to translate the science that I'm trained in on the medicine that I've learned and the psychotherapy approaches that I've developed through training or through just creative uh, weaving so that it would be of practical use, that it would be uh, not only understandable, but, but actually useful. So with my patients, whether they were kids or adolescents or couples or adults or families as a whole, it felt like, and now we're talking about the middle 80s, uh, before what's called the decade of the brain, it just felt like it would be very useful to, you know, understand how your body was contributing to your mental life, your feelings, your thoughts, you know, your behaviors, all that is driven by what we can simply call the mind. So, you know, with my patients, you know, since I was trained in neuroscience, you know, I would teach people about the structure and function of the brain. And it, for me, it just, I don't know, maybe because I'm a science geek, you know, just, it felt like, well, this is probably going to be useful because it's true. And also right. it's not just like, you know, information that's not actionable. It's um, basically, this is a, you know, I'm kind of an acronym, you know, addict, but this isn't quite an acronym, but it's a little ditty that you can remember where attention goes. So that's what the mind does. It drives attention in certain ways. Neural firing flows, and that's neural firing means the electrochemical energy flow in the brain itself, neural firing. And where neural firing flows neural connection grows. And what that means is you're actually turning on genes to grow proteins to then allow neurons to strengthen their literal anatomic connections called synapses or laying down something called myelin to strengthen the structural connections. So to summarize that, the mind can get the brain to become activated turn on genes and then change its very structure by literally 
how you focus attention into awareness. Right. So what that meant was that if I could do that with my patients, mm -hmm. then if I could figure out what might be the fundamental ways they're suffering in life, whether it was chaos or rigidity, which turned out to be the patterns people would show, that chaos and rigidity came later on, I kind of try to work on this model, came from when the brain was not integrated, which means different areas not being linked to each other in some ways, either differentiation, that is specialized areas aren't allowed to grow and specialize, or they are specialized and differentiated, but they're not connected to one another, which is what trauma does. And it's certainly what happened to Barbara with the accident is she lost these really important integrative areas of the brain that allow these complex functions like mindset maps to be um, enabled. So all that being said is the hand model then was what I was using with my patients. And then it was kind of, this is a funny thing as a writer, the first time I really ever wrote a significant piece of writing was to write a graduate school textbook. I'd written chapters for textbooks and stuff. But I wrote a book called The Developing Mind, and I kind of wrote it and wrote it and whatever, and it was ready to go to press. And then I realized I woke up one morning and I said, oh, my gosh, I forgot to put in a picture of the brain. So I, I, I called up my publisher. I said, oh, let's just put in a couple of pictures of the brain. She goes, it's too late for you to add any drawings. I said, yeah, but I can I can add words, right? She said, sure, you can add words, but no drawings. So I said, okay. So I took the developing mind. I took what I was already doing with patients. And I just wrote with words, a summary of the hand model of the brain, just as you described it. Genius. Of the different regions. And I said, here, please insert this at page whatever in the beginning of the book. And I'll just refer to that at different places throughout the book. And in my teaching, she goes, that's fine. So, so the developing mind is a textbook for graduate school and its first edition was put out in the nineties. And I've had some pushback from scientists who say, Dan, you're a scientist and you know, the brain is more complicated than anything you could picture in your hand. I said, of course I know that. And they go, and by the way, you know, you talking about flipping the lid and having those fingers move up, Dan, you know, the skull doesn't move how could the top of the brain really move upward? And I go, oh, come on. You're really saying that to me? They go, yeah, you should stop using the hand model. It's overly simplistic and the brain doesn't move like that. So, you know. Except, except that I have a kid who, who was able to ascertain at a very young age the visual of what it means to flip your lid because of this. I, I love that, Elena, because... I, I still, to this day, even a couple of weeks ago, a dear friend of mine who's a wonderful neuroscientist is on a board of something. She said, are you still using the concept of flipping your lid? <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, I am. And, and she goes, well, then we're not going to have you on the board. And I said, whatever, you know, and I said, um, because here's what Jonah and you, uh, fortunately, uh, have, are sharing with us and so many people tell it to me is that you know, a metaphor like the brain in the hand is a metaphor. Your brain is not in your hand. It's just a metaphor. And metaphors are a very powerful way we remember things, but also the way we can have a map of how things actually work. So I want everyone to know the skull doesn't move. The prefrontal cortex behind your forehead doesn't physically move upward. However, no. the metaphor of an integrated system when your hand is closed together, as Elena pointed out, the metaphor that when you move your hands up, it is metaphorically telling you this system is no longer integrated because what used to be linked is no longer linked. That actually happens in the brain functionally. Totally. And people find that metaphor really powerful to realize, oh my God, my lid is flipping. I need to take a break, get a glass of water, stretch, do something, bring my fingers back down so that I'm not flipping my lid anymore. And I can engage, as you point out, instead of a reactive flip lid state, I go to a more integrated with the hands back together, you know, mm -hmm. um, receptive state where I'm more collaborative, creative, connecting, 
you know, and calm and clear yeah. all the seas. All the seas. It's interesting because that, that whole section of mindset we're in page 7234 is a real has been a real part of my understanding on page 74 you talk about state integration it's in my notes um, mindsight permits us to embrace these states as healthy all the different distinct states of being that embody our fundamental drives and needs that they're all healthy dimensions of a layered life instead of seeing them as parts of ourselves that we need to reject or suppress or or anything else and that was a turning point. I have this circled and starred hearts around it from 10 years ago. That was a turning point for me because I started to realize that the parts of me myself that were so profoundly sad and disconnected and disintegrated did not have to be passed on, but they could be seen as, as parts of my person that, that just needed more love and more attention. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. I, you know, it's so beautiful. You're saying that Elena, the, um, you know, there are nine domains of integration that in the book we kind of get into, and I'm sitting here in, um, an area of our Mindsight Institute office where we have a map of the Appalachian trail. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when I was writing that book, I used a drawing that my daughter made of the handmall of the brain. And that's actually her drawing in there when she was very young. But I think the state integration thing is what allowed her to, to, in many ways, hike the 2200 miles by herself, where states that I think she learned to be aware of, because my wife, Caroline Welch and I, who she wrote this beautiful book called The Gift of Presence, A Mindfulness Guide for Women. She's been on this awareness track independently from me, but then together we, we were the parents yeah. for our daughter, Maddie. And when, when we, I'm looking at this map and thinking about the six, what well, was five and a half months that she did this journey, all the different states that come up in the journey of life, we need to embrace them kind of like the roomy poem, the guest house, where with a broader awareness, this is what I try to talk about in the book, becoming aware you know, and I certainly talk about it in the mindset book in terms of the wheel of awareness. This is the idea of the hub of this wheel. You can, you can invite anything, including a state of mind on the rim. These are the things that are the knowns into the spaciousness of awareness. So if we've taken the time to become aware, meaning to cultivate our awareness, it's kind of like I use this in, in the book aware, um, as an analogy where you know, if your awareness is like the size of like an espresso cup and you have that amount of water in there and a life challenge, like you're hiking the Appalachian Trail and you see a bear or there's some other things that are challenging for you on the trail, it's like a tablespoon of salt. Well, if you've cultivated an awareness the size of an espresso cup, you dump that tablespoon in there, stir it up. The water there is too salty to drink. You cannot take it in. So it floods you, right? You literally become the salty water. It's intolerable to drink. Now, if you've taken the time, and this is what Caroline and I tried to do in our kids, and maybe you did this with Jonah, but in having these reflective dialogues, part of what we're doing is we're building a container of awareness that instead of being the size of an espresso cup, it's more like, you know, a hundred gallons. So now in these reflective dialogues or a practice called the wheel of awareness, either as a drawing or a, a meditation, what happens is a life challenge comes up on the journey of life, whether it's the Appalachian trail you're on or the trail of life you're on. And now that tablespoon of salt enters your life and it's dumped into your awareness. Well, if it's a hundred gallons and you stir a tablespoon of salt into a hundred gallons, you can drink the water. You won't even taste it. You won't even taste it. You stay clear. And this is, you know, I think what state integration, the way you're beautifully describing it, invites us to think about is that you can have a state of mind, like even flipping your lid and you come back out of it. And instead of beating yourself up, you go, okay, let me understand the trigger that happened. Let me use everything as an opportunity to be my teacher. And then you move forward by developing a deeper narrative integration where you're making sense of it in the bigger picture of your life, memory integration, where you're taking the memories that might've been part of the triggers. And then you look at interpersonal integration, where you look at how this affected you and Jonah in that moment. 
And then you go back and you really work at all sorts of levels of left and right integration, you know, which are quite different parts of the brain really, and up, up and down vertical integration and even consciousness integration, where when you differentiate the knowing in the hub of that wheel from the knowns on the rim, you cultivate clarity and calmness, even in the face of challenge. So, you know, this is where all these domains of integration interface with each other. And state integration is a good example of some way we can lose ourselves in a state like flipping your lid. And then to weave it into the, the continuity of who we are is a part of, I think, what the challenge is for, for all of us. And if we've had difficult childhoods, like many of us have had, you know, then it's really our responsibility as attachment research shows to go inward, develop self-understanding, and then bring that self-understanding, even though we cannot change the past, we can change the way the past continues to impact us. And that's the freedom that a mindset approach really offers all of us. You know, when I was going through your book the first time, and again, quite recently, just seeing how I'm doing. My kid is 15. I think I'm doing a pretty good job. I opened up to page 173 and I, I remarked it for myself, but you write on the end of the first second paragraph there. When your child is 25, what do you hope he or she will say are the most important things they learned from you? And that blew my mind. Because I think, and I'm, I might as well be talking to like some massive celebrity. I'm completely in awe. But I think that this particular question in me led me to have the courage to walk him through, walk my kid through the process that I was going through of literally recovering from anger and recovering from rage when he was younger. And because you wrote that, I would walk him through it all the time. And I think what he might say in 10 years from now is that she didn't leave me out of any processes and she, she let me in on her healings. And that's why it worked. Oh, that's so powerful. I'm, you know, Elena, when you talk about uh, that, it's really a gift you've given to Jonah to really take the time, have the courage to go into places that, you know, if they were all fun and light, they wouldn't present challenging moments in parenting. And yet, when we do go into them, it is that gift. And, you know, that question is inspired by my own training as a researcher in attachment, in the adult attachment interview cultivated by Mary Main and colleagues which really showed this finding overall, you know, that parents who've taken the time to make sense of how their own childhoods impacted their lives, when they've made sense of their lives like that, they develop what's called a coherent narrative. And that is the predictor of a child doing well. Whereas another parent who had a similar, let's say difficult childhood, who did not take the time to reflect on what happened way back then, stay stuck with, you know, these what are called implicit memories, these sort of automatic ways that affect our emotional reactions, even the way we perceive things, certainly the way we behave in ways that can repeat, sadly, the traumas that were put onto us, whether they're active abuse or, or even neglect, or even more subtle ways where we may be strict in certain ways or intolerant of certain temperamental features of our child in ways that we may justify when we're not taking the time to be aware. This is where, you know, awareness and becoming aware are resonating with everything we're talking about, about this inside out approach using attachment research, because when you bring into awareness, you say, well, I said X, Y, and Z in my gut, something doesn't feel quite right about that, even though in my head, intellectually, I can say that's the right thing to say. Something in my gut doesn't feel right. And you know, my heart has a certain kind of ache in it when I really let myself be aware of my heart. Now, you may say, oh, Elena's asked Dan to come on. What is he talking about gut and heart? 
But the reality is we have a brain in our heart. We have a brain in our gut that literally process information in what's called a parallel distributed processor, CERP, PDP, which is basically how the brain and the head does things. And in fact, Antonio Damasio, a wonderful neuroscientist I had the privilege to teach with, you know, what Antonio said was there are three brains and the head brain is actually the third brain, which is the servant of the other two, but we've got it all wrong that it is so full of itself, he kind of says, that it forgets that there are the other brains there. So I say this because one way to understand how we've adapted to painful childhood experiences is to retreat into a head brain only way of living, but our heart and our gut continue to give us heartfelt senses and a gut feeling that if we take the time to begin to become aware of that, and that's called interoception, um, then what happens, and some colleagues of mine at UCLA showed that when you do interoceptive training, you grow the area of the brain that allows you to receive those signals. And you not only develop more insight, of course, into what's going on now, you actually develop more empathy, which are the basics of mindsight. So it's a simple pathway, but focusing attention on your body's signals, your heart and your gut, just as a starting place, also your muscles and your breathing, other things too, but just to stay with the heart and the gut allows you to take in these non-rational signals. That is, they're not irrational, meaning they're weird and scary. They're just emotional sensations that are derived from physical input from the body itself. Then you start giving meaning to them when you open this awareness. And you say, you know, wow, my heart is aching, even though my head said those things and is justifying, oh, that was the right way to parent. But my gut is telling me, ooh, something didn't go quite right there. My heart feels like I've really broken a connection with my child. Let me see if this unsettling in a way, non-integrated state. My gut and my heart are saying one thing, my head is saying another. Let me try to explore what this means for my history. And then you go back and you go, wow, I had a longing to be accepted for who I was, to be loved, to be given affection, to be really embraced as I developed in life, but I wasn't, I was channeled in a certain way. So maybe it wasn't neglect, maybe it wasn't abuse, but it certainly was a developmental experience where I wasn't allowed to be my authentic self. So now I develop intellectual ideas about how one should be in life. And then I'm now shoving that on my kid. So even though no one's reporting me for abuse or anything, it's still a form of non-ideal parenting. Let's just put it that way, because your child, when she, he, or they are going to be an adult, and this is the 25 year old question, they're going to be left with a feeling like, I don't really know who I am. I've done X, Y, and Z, but it feels meaningless. And they come to a therapist and I see lots of people like this at 25 or 30 or 35 or 55 or whenever. And they go, I followed this path. I'm financially successful or not or whatever, but emotionally I feel dead inside. And then we often discover they had adopted a pattern by adapting to a way of being parented that really they were absent in their authentic self and had to be a more public adaptive self so that they did all this X, Y, and Z thing to please their parents or to be successful in quotes in society. But it was on the inner side, meaningless for them. And now they're stuck saying, I feel empty inside. Right. Yeah. Wow. It's funny. It reminds me of uh, towards the end of Mindsight. And then I want to talk about becoming aware. Um, you talk about the circuits of doubt. And I'm sure that they're also in the new book, too. But you, you help me understand that the overactive circuits in the case of somebody with OCD, for example, they involve the same areas of our brain that are on the sort of high alert when we've made a mistake. Yeah, I think that's the case. I think I call her Sandy, if I remember correctly. Yes. Yeah. Yes, the the anterior cingulate cortex. 
which creates a sense of anxiety. But it leads me to this point, your point that you just made, um, the anxiety affecting your heart, your intestines, and giving you an internal sense of dread. And which in turn, like, it's like that feeling. I always have this feeling that I'm in some kind of trouble. Like, I have that as a baseline. And I, I wonder how you address this in Becoming Aware, the new book, because this is a book where you are basically guiding your reader how to strengthen their mind through the three pillars of mindfulness, focused attention, open awareness, positive state of mind. Do these two things dovetail in the new book? Because this, the circuits of doubt really helped me see how my belly and my heart would respond when I would feel like I was going to get in trouble and then calm myself down. Yeah, they do. Exactly. Elena, thank you for that insightful um, reflection. You know, in a way, becoming aware, which is a um, 21 day kind of guidebook uh, that's built on the book aware, which is kind of this deep dive into uh, the wheel of awareness practice. And the reports of, you know, I, I was before the pandemic, I was able to do the Wheel of Awareness with about 50,000 people in person. So a lot of people wow. would say, this is what the experience was like for me, you know, and we, we did a recording of one of those retreats and are now going to share the recording and then have people do a live Q&A. So you can, if you want to have that kind of retreat in the Redwoods, you can do it. But when people do that, and you'll hear it directly in, in this Redwoods retreat, amazing things come up in terms of changes or, you know, what in a more romantic way you'd call transformations, you know, in how the inner life of your own self, your personality, your mind, how that can get restructured by simply starting with what's called the integration of consciousness, which means differentiating the knowing of consciousness in this hub of a wheel from the knowns on the rim. So one of the ways it dovetails, as you're pointing out, is that when you can become aware in that hub of what in the practice would be the second segment of the rim, the interior of the body, and start feeling that ache in your gut or your heart that are saying you're in trouble, you're in trouble. And, and the, the phrase in trouble, you know, I think highlights what emotions are, which is they're about meaning, they're about relationships, and they're about bodily sensations. So people don't realize that emotions are so often embedded in our relational connections. So I'm in trouble is an emotional state saying others are going to reject me because this body called me has done something wrong, you know, so I'm in trouble. So, right. so instead of just being swept up by that, like that small cup, you know, espresso sized cup, and you're lost in the salty water, when you do the wheel of awareness practice, which becoming aware teaches you to do, then, mm -hmm. then you've expanded that hub. So now even though those sensations may come up, and in the case of the mindset book, I do this with Sandy, you know, this, pseudo name I give for this patient, sure. you know, sure. who's just a 12 year old, but she learns it so that when these, uh, these doubt circuits come up, instead of just becoming the doubt or being paralyzed by it, she invites it into awareness. She has the openness of this awareness and she can say, thank you for sharing. Thank you for trying to protect me. Let's look specifically at the thing you're worried about. So whether you're parenting or you're a kid going to school or whatever, you're given this freedom for choice and change, which is what consciousness catalyzes. And so that's where you go, well, hold on, hold on. Are you saying that by doing a practice like the wheel of awareness, you can alter a person's, let's say, anxiety that's driven by doubt? And what I'm going to say to you is absolutely yes. And some other kinds of studies that look at interventions like this show it changes the structure and function of your brain. You can actually use your mind to open up to, in this case, a tendency to be doubtful and saying, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble. And it loses its, um, its grip on you because you've now expanded that container and you can drink the water. 
And, you know, I know myself, I have a big doubting mind. And when I was a kid, it would really take me over. But now I use it as a friend where I can say, yeah, you, sh you can doubt this or that, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, whether you're constructing something or taking care of a, we have a rescue puppy at home. And so if I start having doubts about something and there's pesticides on the floor or she's eating the wood chips, you know, I can let the doubt drive my research to see, are those wood chips bad for you? Is the organic pesticide the tree person was using, which has been validated to be actually safe for puppies? Are you now okay? So I say, yeah, you're okay. So instead of beating up on the doubt, I say, thank you for trying to protect, you know, those I love. Um, and then I can act on it without being paralyzed by it. Yes. Oh, I just can't wait to get my hands on this new book. I have such a good feeling about it. I feel like I'm now, I just turned 51. I still feel like I'm 33. Yeah, happy in birthday. My mind. Thank you. And what's interesting though, is that I think this book is the book that's going to help me become like sort of shift gears from parenting to parenting myself. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. The, um, you know, please come join us in this uh, Redwood retreat uh, journey that we're going to start soon because, you know, it's one thing that like a, a, a target, like oh, I want to be a better parent, but then to realize I'm going to help myself yes. become more liberated, even, even to the point I'm a little older than you, you know, and as, as we go forward, my kids are, you know, in their late twenties and early thirties, you know, we had our, our son, Alex Siegel is a musician and you can listen to his music to feel some of this mindset stuff that, that was part of his life. But, you know, we had a birthday party for him and I was just thinking, you know, while the days when our kids are young can be really short, I mean, really long, really, really long, the yeah, years right. are short, you know, the days, my God, they can be long, but the years are short and they go really fast. And there he was 32. And when I wrote my first book, The Developing Mind, you know, the first version of it had a long story about the role of narrative in life. And he was just a year and three quarters then. So that was wow. a long time ago. But when you, when, you, when you start getting older and you start facing your kids getting older and you facing your friends dying, and I've had quite a few friends who've gone or, or my own death, the wheel of awareness that you learn in becoming aware, not just for me, but for the many people who've done it, it actually transforms your approach to living and your approach to dying in mm. this powerful way that when you see it discussed in person, as we, we do in this retreat, but also dive into it in some of the books, certainly it's in aware, uh, which is this deep dive into the science of consciousness and the physics of it. You, you start going, wow. Okay. So this is the big picture of life, the meaning of life, the meaning of death, and how do I go as an awakened adult onward into my life as I get older? And I was just talking to my mom about this, who's 92, you know, yeah. and she had this really cool way, Caroline and I have been sort of teaching her mindfulness practices and all sorts of stuff. And she did two retreats with me to do the wheel of awareness. She had to go incognito. She didn't want anyone to know the teacher's mom was there, but but she said, okay, Dan, I think I, I think I figured out what mindfulness is. I said, well, what is it? She goes, mindfulness is the process that allows you to go from things annoying you to those same things amusing you. Oh my God. And I said, oh my God, that is like the best definition of mindfulness I've ever heard. Ever. So I have to quote ever. my mother, Susan Siegel, you know, that is, you know, to transform annoyance to amusement. Think about, think about that with your life. And uh, that's what I think the wheel of awareness practice can do for all of us. Sort of tangential and not, where is your family from? What's your heritage? Well, you know, um, I'm sitting here at the edge of the unceded lands of the Chumash. So I need to start with, um, with acknowledging literally the relationship with the land I'm on now. But this body's genetic ancestry comes from thousands of years of uh, being alienated, even though I have white skin uh, and live in a white dominant, white 
majority country called the United States. I come from a Jewish history, even though I'm not religious, but that background means that uh, while I have white skin here in this country and I'm accepted as a majority, you know, for about 2000 years, uh, my family has have escaped being slaughtered and being marginalized. And, um, you know, my grandmother would always tell me stories about how angry she was. She grew up in a, what's called a shtetl in Eastern Europe. Where? You know, near Kiev. You know, my family's also from there. Oh my God, we're probably neighbors or relatives. Near near Kiev. Well, she used to call it Kiev Gabelnia, uh, yes. which, which <gasps> meant the outskirts Ooh. of Kiev. And uh, I just watched Filler on the Roof with my, my mom. She's in a film club and that's a film they're going to discuss. But, you know, that's an example of a shtetl and you can see the Cossacks come in and, you know, yes. and they destroyed the town. And that's, so my great-grandfather, my grandmother's dad, she never met because when her mother was pregnant with her, um, wow. the Cossacks came in and murdered him in front of my pregnant great-grandmother. So, you know, there's something called epigenetic changes. And I always wondered how the terror that my great-grandmother must have felt seeing her husband be murdered and the pogroms happening in general would then affect the epigenetic, the non-DNA molecules sitting on top of genes, way my grandmother's ovaries would have been developing. Research on other things like famines and stuff like that would show. So then my grandmother then would have eggs embedding that trauma. And then she comes as a 12-year-old through Ellis Island to the United States, you know, is fighting all sorts of discrimination there. But then her kids would have this epigenetic regulation to be incredibly worried and concerned mm -hmm. and focused mm -hmm. and vigilant about danger and betrayal, which is what the three of them were. They're all gone now, yeah. but they all were like that, you know, and I never understood it until more recent research on epigenetics could understand that. And so part of, I think, the vigilance in my doubting mind that would get me to doubt even my professors of medical school may have been related to, you know, you can't just trust authority figures like Cossacks, you know, to be safe. You always have to be wary that what things appear on the surface may not be what you think. And I, you know, so I can then try not to be enslaved by that with my genetic heritage, but also try to embrace the value of that. So there've been many times, especially when I was in pediatrics, where I would not accept other physicians' conclusions about a patient that was now under my care and responsibility, and I would doubt their assessment, pursue it more deeply. And in a number of cases, the child's life, I mean, I'm not just making this up, but people would then say, you saved that child's life because you didn't assume the people who came before you were accurate in their diagnostic assessment. So I, I think, I, I can't say I thank the Cossacks, but I think part of, you know, always questioning everything, which is what doubting really is, I even doubt my own doubts, you know, has an upside to it, you know, and, and in a clinical world, it can be really, it's exhausting, but it can be really useful and help people. Yeah. I ask that also as a Jew, also not super religious. I just, I wonder someday I would love to pick that apart. Like, why are we not super religious? Um, but I ask that because I do feel that that's true. That all, if you're listening to us, your particular history, our particular history plays a role in how we receive this information about the brain even, and how we heal and evolve that epigenetic imprint. Exactly. You know, and, and you know, it's always important. I've done a, a number of sessions teaching with people who are African-American, who are Black, who, who come from a history of slavery. And sometimes it's welcome to share this Jewish heritage of being, you know, slaughtered. And of course, we're not even talking about the Holocaust. And sometimes it's not. And what I've been very, I think, appropriately given feedback about was, you have white skin, you live in a white dominant society, you don't get in a car and worry about being shot because you're a white man, but if you were a black man, you would, which is absolutely true. 
And I think that feedback for me was really helpful to hear. And even though my intention was to resonate with a 2000 year history of being marginalized and the 400 year history of being stolen from Africa and enslaved, you know, to find a common ground, that was my intention. What your intention is doesn't matter. It's really what the impact is. So the impact can be you as a white cisgender heterosexual male in America have had the privilege of not thinking about your appearance and how it marginalizes you, even though you may be of Jewish background. So please don't now take away from our discussion of racism and the caste system in, in, in America. And I think that was really excellent feedback. It was hard to take to know there's a distinction between intention and impact um, and to take a deep breath about it and say, you know, in, in some setting, I want to talk about positionality like you asked me. And so I brought it up, um, but also to acknowledge that when we live in a country which focuses on skin color a lot and you have pale skin color, uh, like many people who are Jewish do, we need to really accept that we are living in a country that was built on slavery, that's been built on racism and marginalization. And to deny that is to deny reality. And so I think that's a part of the, the opportunity to talk about our history, but also realize in what context are we sharing it. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Thanks for that, that little pathway. I, I just want to just enlighten my listener about who you are, because we didn't start that way. You are Dr. Daniel J. Siegel. You're an internationally acclaimed author, award-winning educator, your child psychiatrist. You're currently a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center. You're also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, where you are right now, which is an educational center devoted to promoting insight, compassion, and empathy in individuals, families, institutions, and communities. And I will never, ever stop thanking you for being here. Your new book is called Becoming Aware. I can't wait to get my little paws on it, get my heart in it. And I thank you for your time here today. My listener and I thank you immeasurably forever. Well, thank you, Elena. I send you a forever thank you and mm. um, gratitude. And if I can channel Jonah, <laughs> I would yes. say we both. Uh, are very grateful forever for the hard work and the deep dive that you've taken. And thank you for sharing this with the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. 
And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.